Family, we're going to continue with our sermon series uh, this morning. Those of you who are visiting us, our series, sermon, uh, our series name is Miracles, Let Him Be Known. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been speaking into this theme. And um, through this theme, we want to declare that we believe God is still doing miracles today. And God is doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit to bless people and to advance His kingdom. And by looking at certain miracles, we want to present our needs. We want to put our faith out to see God provide into that needs. And we want to experience miracles. We want to experience the blessing of God. But ultimately, we want to see God help us and use us to advance His kingdom. And throughout this sermon series, we've looked at specific miracles that happened in the Gospel of John. John's account of Jesus' ministry. In the last couple of weeks, we started looking at where Jesus turned water into wine, what's the significance of that for us, how Jesus healed an official son, and then last week how Jesus walked on water. And today we're going to continue, and we're going to look at the feeding of the 5,000. Some of you might know this miracle as the miracle of the bread and the fishes. If you grew up in church or you're familiar with the Bible, you came from a Christian background, you would somewhere have heard this miracle. It's one of the kids' ministry favorites where Jesus takes the bread and the fishes and he just multiplies it and feeds. And it's called the multiplication of the, the bread and the fishes to the 5,000, but that was just the men that they counted. A more accurate description would have been if you take taken account women and children, probably the feeding of the 12,000. But today we're going to look at this miracle and what makes this miracle unique, it's the only miracle that's recorded in all four gospel accounts of Jesus' ministry. Matthew wrote about it, Mark wrote about it, Luke wrote about it, and John wrote about it. It's the only miracle that all four of them wrote something about it. I look at that and I think, wow, this, I'm really careful to say there's certain moments that's more important than others, but I, I really feel there's something that happened in this moment that was so significant in the disciples' lives that all four of them felt, we need to share this. And because it was so significant that all four would share it, I believe there's something significant in it for us to learn, not just today, but in general in regards to this miracle. And our, my prayer for us this morning is that our familiarity with the story, that what we've known about this, the history that we have of this scripture would not take away the importance behind the scripture, that it would not take away that what God wants to do in and through us as a church this morning. So with that in mind, let's uh, close our eyes and let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for not just what you're doing today, but what you've done roughly 2,000 years ago. Thank you for the way that you ministered and provided into people's needs while you walked on earth, Lord, and thank you that we can know that as you did this in human form, you're still doing it today. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that 
we can spend time in your word and read together this morning, Lord. And I pray that you would, uh, by your spirit, come and enlighten your word. Make it alive and active and speak to our hearts, Lord. I pray that you would guide my words, that it will bring life to our souls, Lord. And that you would keep us from any, any lies or any deception. And ultimately, Lord, we come and submit ourselves this morning onto your word, onto your authority, and by the leading of your spirit. And we say, Lord, may your perfect will be done in and through our lives. May you speak to us today as individuals, Lord. We pray this in your wonderful name, Lord Jesus. Amen. If you have your Bible with you, I would love you to turn to John 6. That's where we're going to read from, John 6, verse 1 to 14. I'm going to read from the NIV translation. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to follow on the screen. Um, this is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Um, the book of John is one of my favorite books, but, but John 6, what happens in John 6, I just feel so significant. So it's, I'm just excited to preach on this this morning. So John 6, verse 1, I'm going to read first. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go amongst so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. I'm just going to pause here for a moment. This is one of my favorite, favorite moments, and it's not part of the sermon. I love how Jesus just brings peace. Chaos, there's people coming, where are we going to go? And Jesus says, have the people sit down. Jesus speaks into that moment. He's just preparing for what he's going to do, have the people sit down. Some of us need to hear this morning the chaos and the storms that you're facing. Jesus is saying, sit down. Sit down and trust me. Jesus says, have them sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that were left over. Let nothing be wasted. So he gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. So many things happening in this miracle. There's so many intricate, small detail that we can look at. But this morning, I want to approach this piece of scripture from a bit of a different angle. And we're going to look at five different views, five different perspectives of this miracle. Firstly, we're going to look at the crowd that followed Jesus. So we're going to look at the crowd and their perspective and what that tells us. Then we're going to look at Philip, how he responded to Jesus. Why is Jesus asking him? And then we're going to look at Andrew, because Andrew features. And then we're going to look at the boy 
and ultimately the disciples. Five different views of this miracle. And after we've done this, hopefully we'll get to a place where we can conclude and ask the question, how is this miracle applicable to our lives? So firstly, let's look at the crowd. We see that there was a, a crowd. We, we roughly estimate 12,000 people approaching Jesus. A crowd that was searching for Jesus. And this, this sounds great. They are looking for Jesus. You would love to lead a church that is looking for Jesus. People that's actively going and searching for Jesus. You would love to be part of that crowd. But we see from John, there were some reasons why they were searching for Jesus. It wasn't just they were searching for Jesus the person. They were searching for Jesus because of the signs that he was performing. They're not really searching Jesus. They're searching the miracles. They're in it for the experience. They came to Jesus to experience something. They were following and searching Jesus for experiences because of the science that Jesus was performing. In a sense, we can say they are following Jesus because of what's in it for them. They're not there for Jesus the person. They are there for what Jesus is doing. The problem with following Jesus in this way is that this relationship is ultimately built around personal needs. What's in it in me, for me? And, and the problem with a needs-based relationship, especially in terms of God, is that ultimately you're in control. Meaning the areas of my life where I need something, the areas in my life where I need God to do something, the needs in that areas I'm willing to surrender, to obey, to follow, to seek Jesus. But let's be honest, not all areas of my life every time needs something specific as miracle in my life. So the areas where there's needs, I follow and seek Jesus. But the areas where there's not a need, I do my own thing. It's a needs-based relationship. And, and what's challenging around this form of following Jesus is there's no room for the lordship of Jesus because you're in control. You determine what areas of your life you bring to Jesus and what not. There's just not room for the rulership of Jesus. Ultimately, as bad and as tough as this might sound, this way of following Jesus is a self-centered, self-seeking, self-glorifying way. And I know it sounds bad, but they're there for what they can get, not because of who they get. They're following God for what He can do, not who He is. Challenge with this form of faith, as long as God is providing into those needs, as long as God is performing the signs, and as long as God is doing what they are expecting Him to do, they follow. But as soon as God don't do and perform according to their needs, their faith dwindles away. They start to question who God is, question His character question is love. Because ultimately, they're not there for who He is. They're there for who, what He can do 
It's a needs-based following, searching experiences, signs, miracles, but not searching Jesus. What can God do for me? But then we find this really interesting moment, and it's, it's only in the book of John where we see how Jesus specifically addressed one of the disciples. In the other accounts, we see Jesus speak to the disciples. But here we see Jesus turns to, to Philip, and he asks Philip, where are we going to get enough for this people? And we read that God is doing this to test something. I find this fascinating. I find the question, I ask the question, why is God asking Philip, of all the disciples, where we're going to get enough bread? Now, there's something we have to know about Philip. Philip grew up in a town called Bethsaida. And Bethsaida is roughly about 16 kilometers from where Jesus and his disciples are at now. So Philip grew up in the area. Philip is a local. It makes sense that Jesus turns to the local and asks him, where are we going to get bread? It makes sense that you ask someone from Cape Town something about Cape Town. I'm from Van Abel Park. I can tell you there's nothing you need to know. <laughs> there's other people that might tell you there's something that you need to know. I'm, just, I'm a local. You're fine. I'm now wondering who's watching that. <laughs> Sorry, mom and dad. But if you want local information, you ask the locals. So Jesus turns to the local in the group and he says, Philip, where's the best place? Tell me where's the best bakery. Where's the most bread that we're going to get? The other thing we need to know about Philip is Philip is one of the very first disciples of Jesus. He's one of the dedicated disciples of Jesus. In fact, he followed John the Baptist first. He was first the disciple of John the Baptist, and then he started following Jesus. He's been part of Jesus' ministry from the beginning. He saw Jesus turn water into wine. He saw Jesus heal the paralyzed man. He saw Jesus performing so many miracles already. He's one of the dedicated disciples. Jesus turns to the local dedicated disciple and says, where are we going to get enough bread to feed the crowd? Because we have a problem. There's a crowd. Regardless of what they are there for, we have a problem. How are we going to fix this? And then we say, Jesus was doing this to test him because Jesus already knew what he was going to do. Jesus, don't test us to see what's in our hearts. Jesus tests us to show us what's in our hearts. And Jesus is showing Philip something. Now imagine, he's a local. He's been with Jesus. He's seen, seen all the miracles. How do you think Philip's going to respond? And he can respond based on these two important moments in the history or, or facts that I shared about Philip. Either he can rely on his local knowledge, his what he knows about the area, and he, he can go, well, I can respond in a very practical, logical way, or he can respond in faith based on what he's seen and experienced about Jesus. And every time that we face an impossible situation, we are faced with that decision. I can respond in a practical, logical way that I can understand, which I, under, which I can see and and almost calculate, or I can respond in faith to what I know about God. How does Philip respond? 
He does the math. He just says, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Take your salary, half a year's salary, and that would be enough for everyone to take a bite. What Philip is saying to Jesus in this moment, Jesus, it's impossible. It's impossible. I wonder if Philip is actually saying, let's run. It's impossible. There's 12,000 people. I've done the math. I know the bakery. I know where they're making bread. I know even if we bought all the bread in the town, it is not enough. It is impossible. That's what Philip, this dedicated disciple, is telling Jesus. Jesus, it is not enough. It's impossible. How often do we look at our circumstances and we go, it's impossible. It's impossible that God can do something for me. It's impossible that God will do something for me. The challenge that I'm facing, the task that's ahead, the, the, all the obstacles, it is just not enough. It's impossible. Philip could have responded, Jesus, I don't know. I honestly don't know where we're going to get enough bread. I honestly don't know what you can do. But I was there when you turned water into wine. And if you can do that, you can do something. Philip could have responded in faith. But he fell back on what he knew and understood. And he concluded, it is impossible. Whatever challenge you're facing, are you going to conclude it's impossible? Or are you going to say, God, I don't know why, but I know what you can do. And there's this crowd, there's Philip, and then Andrew. Now, I don't know exactly what's happening, but I'm trying to imagine. There's these people coming and... The disciples are anxious, and then Philip says to Jesus, imagine, you're telling the Messiah it's impossible. I imagine there's this awkward silence. The rest of the disciples are just, oh, what's happening now? Mm, Philip, missed something there. And then Andrew breaks the silence. There's uncomfortable silence amongst the disciples. And he makes what seems to be this irrelevant comment. I mean, Jesus just said, there's this crowd. Philip just said, it's impossible. And then, then Andrew says this thing that almost doesn't make sense. He says, well, he has five barley loaves and two fishes. Now we read Andrew is Simon's brother. Now, if you know a little bit about Simon Peter, he's sort of like acting like the leader of the group, I just imagine he's going, oh, no, Andrew. I'm sorry, Jesus. This is my baby brother. <laughs> just stay quiet. And there's a moment here, and then Andrew comes and he says, well, we have five breads and two fishes. And I imagine Andrew is doing what most of us would have done in this moment. And Andrew is also doing the math. He's seeing 12,000 people. Philip said it's impossible, but we have 
five breads and two fishes. It is not enough for the crowd, but it might be enough for us. I imagine that's what's happening here. Andrew looks and like Philip, he concludes, it is impossible, but he hasn't lost the hope. It might not make a difference to the challenge that's in front of us, but it will make a difference for me. And often, we fall in this trap. We get so fixated on our own personal needs that we might miss what God wants to do in and through our lives. We look what God has given us. We look what's in our position. We look what we have, and we conclude it might not make a difference to the challenge of the world, but if I apply it to my own life, it will make a difference there. And by being so captured, by our own needs, we might miss what God wants to do through our lives. And then we see the boy. And I, I love that we almost know nothing about this boy. Everything about this boy and what he brings speaks about insignificance. We don't know his name. We don't know where he came from. We don't know who he's related to. We don't know how he ended up to be there. We don't know how he ended up speaking to disciples. We know nothing about the boy. The only thing we know is he's a boy, and he's got, and look at the detail, small barley loaves and small fishes. Again, just playing on, it, it's so insignificant. Barley loaves, barley was cheaper than wheat. So, barley loaves is associated with a poorer class. So, we can conclude that not only we don't know his name, not only do we don't know how he came there, but he's probably from a poor background with very little food. Everything speaks about insignificance. But he gave in whatever way what seemed so insignificant to Jesus. And Jesus used it miraculously. Almost 12,000 people benefited and experienced the miracle because of this insignificant gift from the boy. 12,000 people experienced something about Jesus because of this Seemingly insignificant act. See, the little he had was enough for the need, was not enough for the need. But in the hands of Jesus, it became a powerful seed for a miracle. Could have, like Andrew, like Philip, gone, it would not make a difference, but he didn't. And his little, his insignificant little part that he's playing became a powerful seed in Jesus' hands to do a miracle. At most, this boy is an extra in a far grander movie. But his act had a massive impact.
See, the question we need to ask ourselves, what's in your hands? What's in your hands? What has God given you? We tend to go to this miracle and we immediately think of my need, my hunger, my uh, something that needs to be provided. But there's a second part to this miracle where we need to ask, well, what has God already given in your hands? What's the small, insignificant barley loaves and fishes that God has given you? And then we need to ask ourselves, more importantly, will you offer your not enough, your insignificant little, little into the hands of Jesus? Are you willing to offer it, to let it go, so that it may be a come, a powerful seed in the hands of Jesus? And then we have the disciples. The crowd, Philip, Andrew, the boy, and the disciples. We see how Jesus deliberately involved the disciples in this miracle. If you look at Luke's account in Luke 9, um, we see a better description of how Jesus involves them. Quickly read this together. Taking the five leaves, loaves and two fishes and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples. This is important detail. Jesus breaks it and he gives it to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces that were left over. See, the disciples became the channel through which Jesus blessed the people. Jesus involved them. They participated in the miracle that Jesus was doing through them. They weren't just benefiting from the miracle, but they were participating in the miracle. And through their participation, something significant changed. In them. Through their participation, God did something in their hearts. See, if we go to the crowd, the crowd experienced the same miracle, and they believed Jesus for what He can do. They said at the end, this must be the prophet that we're waiting for. So they experienced the same miracle and believed that God could do something. But the very next day, and if you have time, go and read the whole John 6. The very next day, they are searching for Jesus again. Why? Because when you sleep and you wake up, you're hungry. So the very next day, they, they see Jesus not there, and they're hungry, and they're searching for Jesus again. And then they come to Jesus, and this is what they ask Him. Remember, not last week, not last month, yesterday. They ask him, so Jesus, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Yesterday, <laughs> we had a feast. And after the feast, we went, whoa, we believe. You're the prophet. Today, I'm hungry. Jesus is not providing according to my needs. And I go, Jesus, what will you do 
so that I will believe. What do we do again so that I will believe? And in this moment, Jesus doesn't provide food. Jesus doesn't go, okay, guys, who's the next boy? Bring, bring, come. Where's the 12 baskets of leftover? Come, let's do it again. Now what Jesus then tells them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger again. Jesus tells them, I am enough. And what you're searching for, you're not going to find in food. I am enough. They get offended. They get offended because Jesus is not performing the signs and the miracles that, just, that they're searching him for. And then they say the following. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came from heaven? Yesterday when Jesus was performing miracles, this is the prophet we were waiting for. Now when Jesus is not performing according to their faith, they say, we know his mom and dad. We know where he comes from. How can he say? He came down from heaven. As soon as God is not performing according to our faith-based needs, people start to question his character and who he is. Because we're following not for who he is, but what he can do. And then if you read John 6 further on, you would see from this moment, after offending them, telling them, I'm the bread of life and I'm enough, many, many, Abandoned Jesus. Turned away. And then Jesus turns to the disciples. And he asks them, What about you? Don't you too want to leave? Don't you want to leave too, do you? And Simon Peter answers this. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter is saying, God, where shall we go? You are enough. We've come to believe, not in what you can do, but we've come to believe and know that you are who you said you are. You are the Holy One of God. We're not believing you for what you can do. We're believing you for who you are. Same miracle, same experience, but they participated in that. And through their participation, something changed in their hearts, and they got to know that he is the bread of life. He is enough. Not because of what he do, but because of who he is. Both groups participated, in, oh, not participated, experienced the miracle. Both were blessed, but the disciples participated. Both believed. They believed what God can do. The disciples believed in who God is. See, it's great for us to experience miracles, and I do believe with all my heart that we should seek and trust God for miracles in our lives. But there's something significant that changes in our hearts when we see God use us for other people's miracles. 
seek God, if you're in a place where you need God, and you need God to come and multiply the bread and the fishes and provide into your needs, please do do that. But there's something that happens. We don't just learn that God is the provider. You learn who God is when He starts to use you for someone else's miracle. When you become the channel for what God wants to do in this earth. Crowd, Philip, Andrew, the boy, and disciples. Five views on the same miracle. So how does it apply to our lives today? Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you realize if you had to associate with one of these views, you're probably part of the crowd. Maybe you sit here this morning and there's a part of you that know God, there's a part of you that know about following God, but if you're really, really honest, you're following Him for what's in it for you. Following based on a specific need and and God isn't ruling over your life. You don't follow Him because of who He is, but because of what He can do. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you've, you've turned away from God. You've turned away from Jesus because there was something that you were trusting and hoping for, and, and it didn't happen. It didn't happen in the time. It didn't happen in that moment. And, and you're disappointed. And you're discouraged. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you realize, like the crowd, you've walked away from Jesus and you don't know him. Maybe you're like Philip. You know Jesus. You've seen miracles in your past. You've seen God come through in the past. But just the thing that you're facing now just seems impossible. And you almost don't have faith for this moment. You don't have faith for what God can do now. You've concluded it is impossible. May you hear this morning that nothing is impossible for God. May we repent of this moment saying, God, I, I've doubted my heart. And may you extend your faith for what God can do. May you be reminded this morning of all the times that God has already proven himself and came through for you. Maybe you're like Andrew. And you don't have bad motives in your heart. You're not a selfish person. There's not... It's not that you choose, but you've just been so caught up in your own needs and own challenges and own things that need fixing that you've stopped trusting God to use your life. You're just so, in a way, internally focused that you've lost the ability to see others around you, see the need. Stopped asking God, God, how can you use me? Maybe this morning you feel like this boy. You feel God is calling you to look at what's in your hands. God is calling you to trust Him and to surrender and to hand it over. Say, God, I don't know how this is going to change the world. I don't know how this is going to change another family. I don't know how this is going to... This is insignificant. Maybe God is calling you to open your hands with the time that you have, the gifts that you have, with your finances, whatever God is 
placing in your heart. And you think, well, how's this going to change the world? In Jesus' hands, it becomes a powerful seed that can do miracles. Maybe like this boy, you are challenged to look what's in your hands. Challenged to surrender it. Thought about this boy <laughs> giving his food up, knowing that he'll probably not get something back. But others were blessed. Maybe this morning, Jesus is calling you from the crowd to be a disciple. To say, I'm calling you to live a life that's more than what you're living now. I'm calling you to be a channel of my grace for the kingdom of God in this world. And I'm calling you to participate. Not just to experience, but to participate. Will you? Will you follow me? Will you trust me? Because I want to show you not what I can do. I want to show you who I am. And if you trust me and I'm going to use you in this world for my kingdom, you're going to discover something about who I am, not just what I can do. And there's a challenge in front of us, the church, to ask the question, can you trust God to be a channel for someone else's miracle? Miracle season. We're praying for our own miracles, but can we today trust God to be a channel for someone else's miracle? Five views. Same miracle, same experience. But different takeaways. Where are you? What is God laying on your heart, challenging you towards this morning? I want us to close our eyes, and we're going to pray into this. And I want to give you a moment for personal prayer. If you're part of the crowd, it's a moment to repent. Say, God, I've been following you for, based on my needs. I've not really surrendered to you as, as my Lord. I'm not obeying you in every area, Lord. I'm far from you. I've turned from you. I'm discouraged, Lord. If that's you, this is your moment to say, God, I'm sorry. I'm turning to you. Maybe like Philip, you have to go, Lord, I've chosen to believe it's impossible that this morning I'm surrendering again. And I say, Lord, do your will. Nothing is impossible. Maybe like Andrew, you have to say this morning, Lord, forgive me that I've just been caught up in my own needs and my own challenges. And Lord, would you open my eyes for what you want to do? I believe all of us should ask, Lord, what have you placed in my hands? And how do you want to use it? In a personal prayer, say, Lord, I'm surrendering my time. I'm surrendering whatever God is placing in your heart. And I think all of us should ask, Lord, how can you use me for someone else's miracle? I want to be a channel 